Uh, we are going to be looking at the Second Corinthians passage. So if you would turn back to page 9 in your bulletins. It's often been remarked that Americans are astonishing optimists. Our opening fusillade, as it were, on the world historical stage included the unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness, after all. Alex de Tocqueville, a French observer of American life at the beginning of the 19th century, observed that the Americans of his day have all a lively faith in the perfectibility of man. They all consider society as a body in a state of improvement. In 2001, the Irish philosopher Charles Handy retraced de Tocqueville's trek across this country and came to a remarkably similar conclusion. Anyone visiting America, he says, cannot fail to be struck by the energy, enthusiasm, and confidence in their country's future that he or she will meet among ordinary Americans. Most Americans seem to believe that the future can be better and that they are responsible for doing their best to make it that way. This national optimism, of course, has been succinctly described as the American dream. But of course, there's a shadow side to such national optimism. As many have noted, the very phrase, the American dream, underscores its insubstantial and elusive nature. Dashed expectations and constant striving lead to despair and disillusionment for many. The rate of suicide, after all, is at a 30-year high, even as psychiatric treatment and diagnosis are more available than ever before. Opioid addiction is killing Americans by the tens of thousands. Sociologists bemoan the increasing loneliness and social isolation of our nation, even as our pockets buzz and jangle with the technology that can bring the farthest reaches of the world to us with a swipe. Many millennials wonder if theirs is the first generation in some time that perhaps rightfully fears being less well off than their parents' generation. Of course, unfulfillment is not a uniquely American phenomenon. A recent book by the London School of Economics anthropologist David Graeber recounts a 2015 poll of the British people who were asked whether they thought that their jobs made a meaningful contribution to the world. 37% said no, and 13% were unsure. In the Netherlands, the same uh, poll, 40% of respondents believed that their jobs had no reason to exist. Graeber's uh, research sums it up like this. Uh, the sense of uselessness gnaws at everything that makes humans humans. Maybe you too this week have found yourself pondering the meaning of it all after another PowerPoint presentation at work or another agenda that was emailed around. And so, though, I invite us against this unsteady backdrop of promise and disillusionment to the words of 2 Corinthians 5 here, to Paul's words, which I understand for some of us might strike us as shocking. Some of us suspect Paul is being remarkably naive or perhaps even insensitive here, particularly when he declares in verse 6, so we are always of good courage. Wake up, Paul, some of us want to say. Look around. In the face of all this in the world, how dare you tell us to have good courage? Let me nevertheless suggest that good courage is precisely what Paul wishes us to have after reading this passage. And his method is to show us a Christian view of the really real. That is to say, he wants us to see that there is more going on in the world than first meets the eye, and that this is a cause for hope. 
Because the Christian view of reality has its roots in the faithfulness, the closeness and intimacy of, the power and the glory of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've just been reading John Updike's 1959 novel, Rabbit Run. And uh, if you don't know this book, you know, the, that's fine, you know, don't expect it. But there's a narrator, uh, Rabbit Angstrom, uh, and there's a scene in the book where he's visiting a prostitute under cover of night. And he gazes out the window, and across the street is a church. And he describes the church like this. Lights behind its rose window are left burning. And this circle of red and purple and gold seems in the city, seems in the city night, a hole punched in reality to show the abstract brilliance burning underneath. I think it's a lovely description of why the church proclaims to be in some regards. And I think Paul here invites us to see something similar, something that the church and the power of the Holy Spirit has pointed to all through the ages, that is a vision that goes to the very roots and foundation of reality itself. There's four things I want to note about the vision of reality Paul sets out here in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. First is its realism. Second is its embrace of resurrection. Third is its insistence on reward. And fourth, its emphasis on relationship. So first, it's realism. Look down at verse one with me. Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul here uses the language of a tent, also in verse two, for in this tent we groan, and in verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. This tent imagery describes our earthly home, by which he means our physical bodies. In chapter 4, the chapter previous to this one, the one uh, we looked at last week, Paul has already described at some length both the frailty and vulnerability of those bodies. The perplexity, persecution, violence, death, and decay that our bodies are prone to. Here he continues that theme to emphasize the transitory nature of bodily existence. Tents, after all, are not meant to be lived in permanently. They're frail against harsh weather, let in the cold. They sag in the rains. They let things in. Paul goes further in verse 1 and says that our bodies may, of course, be destroyed. The words here have the cast of objective fact. They describe the common lot of all of us, sinner and saint, believer and unbeliever. That is, we are all going to die. I think sometimes it's tempting for us moderns to believe that we're the only ones who've really looked around and taken stock of all the contradictions, difficulties, and uncomfortable realities of life. It's we, after all, who've read Waiting for Godot. It's we who've noticed that fervent prayers go unanswered often. It's we who've had to grapple with the Holocaust, for instance. But those who came before us weren't dumb or blind either. And Christians like Paul certainly weren't dumb or blind uh, themselves. One of the first American missionaries to leave American shores, after all, was Adoniram Judson. Anyone heard of Adoniram? Well, Adoniram's story is sobering. He buried three wives and three children before he himself died in what was then called Burma. His first baby was born dead as they sailed from India to Burma. The second child lived 17 months and died. The third lived to be two, outlived her mother Anne by six months, and then also died. Judson made 18 converts in 12 years of ministry. 12 years 
18 converts, three dead wives, three dead children. This is fearful arithmetic by any measure. And it's not as if Judson didn't know it either. His letters are full of the grief and pain of it. He suffered from devastating depression and self-doubt. And yet, ultimately, he did not lose his gospel hope. How? Judson was a man who knew the tentedness of his body. Here he is at the beginning of his ministry, writing to ask for his first wife, Anne's hand in marriage. He writes, I have now to ask, he's writing to her father, as they did in those days. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the climate, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who, is left, who left his heavenly throne and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? That is quite a marriage proposal. <clears throat> but it shows something about Judson. Say what you will about him, he was not disillusioned. And he had no illusions about the difficulties of life. But how in the world can such a profound knowledge of the frail tentedness of her bodies lead to Christian hope and courage, which, remember, is what Paul wants us to have in this passage? Well, it's disillusionment, not truth. That's the enemy of good courage. Where does disillusionment come from? Well, often it's from unrealistic expectations, which decouple us from reality. Paul does not want the Christian to live in a dream. What about us? Well, for a country that's arguably perfected more than any other the dream world that is modern advertising and consumer capitalism, with its white teeth and ever young and ever beautiful young bodies, Paul's emphasis on the objective reality of our transitory tentedness is perhaps needed more than ever. There are two other ways that Paul wishes to ground our vision of reality and realism. First, he recognizes the subjective frailty, the subjective reality of our frail bodies, what it feels like to be human. Note verse 2 and 4. In this tent we groan, for while we're still in this tent we groan, being burdened. We talked about this last week in Corinthians 4, and Paul returns again to this theme in 2 Corinthians uh, later. It's worth checking out. The point is that being a Christian, Paul wants us to realize, does not exempt us from the groanings of being human, from sorrow and grief, from broken hearts and dashed expectations, from illness and disease. Second, Paul also describes the Holy Spirit as a down payment or guarantee of our future glory. So look to verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. One preacher glosses the text like this. Guarantee really is a down payment, and it is only a down payment. Both halves of that meaning are crucial. It is a strong word of hope on the one hand. The full payment of blessing will someday be made. But it's also a strong word of realism. Someday, not yet, not fully. So realism is a prerequisite to Christian hope. You will bury your babies in Burma. 
But Paul's vision of reality doesn't end there. Because for Paul, as real as the reality of death is, so is the reality of resurrection. We continue reading. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In the face of suffering and death, Christianity insists upon this reality, the reality of the resurrection. Paul's aim in these verses is assurance, assurance to the Corinthian Christians that God will, in fact, swallow up mortality in life. It is the profound mystery and message of the gospel that Christ's work on the, co- on the cross has accomplished all things necessary for us to live eternally with him. And no barrier, no matter how great, not even the greatest barriers of them all, sin and death, can keep those of us who turn in repentance in Christ to, from God. Death is not the end for the believer, Paul wants us to see. So let's talk a little bit more about what we can learn from Paul here about that resurrection reality. Notice that our existence after death is not disembodied. Look down uh, at verse three, sorry. By putting it on, we may not be found naked. And later it says, not that we would be unclothed. These verses indicate that the resurrected life is not one where our souls float in some kind of spiritual ether. Not that our final destiny is nothingness nor is it some kind of detached, spiritualized intelligence. But the imagery here is of further clothing, of mortality putting on the jacket or overcoat of immortality. In other words, the ultimate Christian hope is not release from the tent of the body, but a glorious, eternal body. What kind of body will this be? Well, Paul tells us that it is a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The emphasis here is on permanence and assurance. The reality of this resurrected body is accomplished by God, not by us. And therefore, it is kept safe. Recall the words of Jesus in Matthew when he says that every hair of the head is numbered. And what does Jesus say immediately after this? He says, do not be afraid. Why? You are worth more than many sparrows, which is just a way of saying that you are known that you are valuable to the God of of the heavens himself. I think of the poet Jared Manley Hopkins here pondering these things when he writes in his poem, The Leaden Echo and the Golden Echo. He says, see, not a hair is, not an eyelash, not the least lash lost. Every hair, hair of the head is numbered. That thing, our bodies, which we freely forfeit is kept with fonder a care, fonder a care kept than we could have kept it, Kept far with fonder a care, and we, we should have lost it. Finer, fonder a care kept. I take Hopkins to mean exactly what Paul here is saying to the Corinthians. That we can have the assurance that there's nowhere safer for us to be. Nowhere safer to entrust all that is precious and dear to us. Nowhere safer for our very bodies and souls than in the hands of God. Another way to put it is this. That our Christian brothers and sisters may be gone from us, but they are not lost. How can a thing be lost if you know where it is? We know, Paul says. 
where it is, with Christ. Paul is saying here that we know, we know all of our Christian brothers and sisters are with him after death. Furthermore, there's something interesting. The resurrected body in some real way has a profound consonance to our current bodies. Here we speak of some mysteries, but what we know from the resurrection accounts in the Gospels is that Jesus' body was recognizable to his earthly body. That is, people saw him and knew who he was. He also ate. It's one of the most striking things about these gospel accounts, how hungry Jesus is. He's constantly eating. And perhaps most mysterious of all, the resurrected body that Jesus bears has the scars of his crucifixion on it. This is the body that is at the right hand of God in heaven. And it also possessed, despite these things, a glory and power beyond our understanding. And as Jesus is, so we will be. In Philippians 3.21, Paul says that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And so along with Paul and us and the church throughout the ages, in the fear of death, we look less to our fears and more to Jesus. For many of us, though, the question I imagine is how do you know, right? What assurance do you have that God's promises here of life beyond death, so triumphantly affirmed by Paul, how do you know that they are true? Well, let me suggest a couple things. First, if you find yourself doubting, perhaps hoping it's all true in your heart of hearts, but nevertheless afraid that it isn't. Perhaps you're afraid Marx is right. All this religion stuff is just an opiate of the masses, pure pie-in-the-sky escapism. Well, you're in good company, if that's the case. You're not alone. The people of God have always struggled to reckon with God's promises. So think back to the ancient Israelites. Remember the tabernacle. The tabernacle, what was it? It was a flimsy thing that held glory. It was the place where God dwelled among his people. It was the place where the heavenly reality, so to speak, touched the earthly reality in a unique and intimate way. But it was also a tent. That is to say, it was temporary. It was a kind of now and not yet. Heaven met earth here. God was here. But it also pointed ahead to a time when the glory of God would be even further established and made even more permanent. And so then the temple was built. This grand, gorgeous solid stone place. And surely for the Israelites, this was it. Surely this was the place where God's glory was and would be permanently. But then that temple was destroyed. So what did that mean? Surely for the people of God, it meant, must have felt like, that God's promises had failed. Here I think of William Shakespeare uh, at the end of King Lear not familiar with the play, at the end of King Lear, Lear comes out holding his daughter Cordelia's lifeless body on stage. It's quite a horrific moment. It's probably one of the bleakest scenes in all of Shakespeare. And there's two characters, Edgar and Kent, who see the scene, which seems so cruel and unexpected. And they recoil. And they say, is this the promised end or image of that horror? Surely for the Israelites, seeing the temple destroyed must have felt that way. Is this the promised end? But no, it wasn't the end. Because then Jesus comes along and makes an astonishing claim that he is the real temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. 
where man could commune face to face with God. Think of the Gospel of John, and the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Think of Mark 14, 58, when Jesus says, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. The language here very closely echoes Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. But notice the pattern throughout salvation history. A frail tent, a stone temple, Christ himself. That is glory and weakness, glory and destruction, real glory forever. And of course, Christ's life also followed this pattern. Weakness into death into resurrected glory. This is the story of God. Just when you think it's over, it's not. And it's our story too. But I know that promises like bodies can seem frail, especially in the face of something as big and scary as death. That's why it's so important that in our doubts we must look to Jesus. It's part of what it means to walk by faith, not by sight. If you are a Christian here today, then at some point you met Jesus Christ. On some level you have tasted the truth, beauty, and goodness of him who's the source of all that is true, beautiful, and good. This heart intimacy is part of the guarantee, Paul says in verse 5, the deposit, the spirit that Paul talks about. It's the sense of intimacy with the Lord which can give us some assurance. There's something else too. One of the wonderful gifts God gives us in our doubting that allows us to see clearly is the sacrament, bread and wine. It's a gift because in the sacrament we see, even if for a moment, these sparkling realities that we've been attempting to talk about today. The conscious presence of the Lord is the Spirit's foretaste, and in a very real way, what is offered in communion is this, that when you eat the bread and drink the wine, you're there. You're there with Isaiah in the throne room of God. You're there with Jesus, your advocate, your savior, your beloved, your Lord, your friend, there before the glorious throne. This is why we say in the liturgy, we lift up our hearts to the Lord. This is why we also say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. The very words the angels say eternally in the presence of God, according to Isaiah. In other words, communion is a way of seeing here and now the fundamental unseen truth of the world. Another way to put it is that the sacrament makes explicit and vivid that which is hidden and implicit. The great Anglican theologian Richard Hooker says it this way, God gave us the sacraments to know when grace is happening. Which isn't to say that grace doesn't happen elsewhere, but it does say that grace is happening here. Do you notice how explicitly our communion liturgy emphasizes these things? You'll see it in a moment when we go through it. It is all about comfort. Be assured. Be of good courage. Be comforted. Trust in what God is doing. You come empty, you are filled. Even if you don't feel it, trust in the work of God because it does not depend on you. And finally, in our times of doubting, there will be times where we must rely on the faith of others to help keep us going. Notice how often we know is repeated throughout our passage this morning. You see in verse one, for we know that, for instance, 
So we are always of good courage. We know in verse six. It appears all throughout. There's something creed-like in its repetition. Think of the creed we just said. You know, we believe in God, the Father Almighty. There's something creed-like in this passage. One of the things about so many of the great Christian recitations like the creeds or the Lord's Prayer is the plurality of their grammar. We believe, we know. In fact, one of the things about reading scripture together in a community, about singing together in a community, about saying the creeds together as a community, is that it teaches us how much we need each other. How sometimes you are up and I am down. How sometimes your faith is hot and mine is cold. How sometimes you believe and I doubt. How sometimes your burden is light and mine is heavy. And all that, we are meant to be there for each other. We can actually do great eternal harm or good to one another in how we bear or not each other's burdens. This is an amazing thing about becoming a Christian. You not only gain a perfect father in heaven, but eternal brothers and sisters as well. And in this life, we need that. I need that. We need to entrust ourselves to the divine reality that sometimes the words we say together express something more faithful than our individual selves can muster. So no matter your subjective feelings, entrust yourself to the presence of Jesus Christ who promises to be here where two or three are gathered together in his name. And this leads to another aspect of Paul's description of divine reality. Reward. Look down at verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Note, first of all, the unusually intimate language in verse 9. Home. We aim to please him. These verses describe not a judgment about the believer's eternal destination here, not a judgment about heaven or hell, but rather reward or loss. This is a judgment for the saved believer. How can we understand this? Well, if we put this in the relational terms of verse 9 and those elsewhere in the New Testament, it appears that we can hurt or harm our relationship with Jesus, just like any other relationship that is real. We all know that we can hurt the ones we love, even while still being a beloved member of the family. Sometimes we suffer painful consequences relationally because of it. Or, on the other hand, we know that in our relationships, we can do things which strengthen that relationship, which cause joy to spring up between us. That's a way of understanding this as we look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about himself and another Christian worker named Apollos. He says, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor. Then a few verses later, Paul goes on to say this. If anyone builds on the foundation that is the foundation of the gospel, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward, if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So difficult verses. And some of us here, I understand, are uncomfortable with verses like these. 
But certainly Jesus wasn't uncomfortable talking about judgment, and he was not uncomfortable using the language of rewards and punishments. But let me say this. Whatever else these verses, uh, verses 9 and 10 mean, what they are saying is that all of this matters. Verse 10 of 2 Corinthians is very explicit. The things we do in the body have eternal consequences. In an age whose emblematic image may well be the purposelessness, repetitive flicking of a thumb through an endless social media feed, this is a truth, perhaps, that calls us to something more. What you do matters. Our society cannot hope to stuff its void of meaning with materialism, consumption, the distractions of endless entertainment, not without great cost and not without eventually doing damage to the wellsprings of life itself. And so verses 9 and 10 remind us that it is possible for you to contribute to the great eternal good of the world, to participate in a great kingdom of light and truth and goodness and beauty and justice and mercy and grace. Or it is possible for you to contribute very little or nothing at all. Or it is possible for you to contribute great evil, to wound and destroy in such a way that your evil lasts beyond your lifetime. So for the Christian, Paul wants us to understand that the world has weight. Our bodies themselves have weight. I won't deny that at times this can be a terrible weight. When I hold my baby daughter, I'm struck sometimes by the terror of it, the awesome burden in my hands, that responsibility. But at the same time, it's the most beautiful burden I know. That beautiful and terrible burden is yours, now and always, whether you realize it or not. For if we take the Bible seriously, then you and I belong to each other as surely as my daughter and I belong to each other. And all of us, and all of this reality, belongs to Jesus and is meant for him. And Paul says that is a cause for hope and for courage. So realism, resurrection, reward, relationship. Paul calls us to embrace a Christian view of the world that we might have courage. But even so, if you find yourself trembling, if you doubt, listen to the words of Jesus in John 16, 33. I've told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen.